You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Nick Correa. It's Wednesday, April 29th, 2020. We have Real Vision's Ash Bennington and Roger Hurst standing by to give their macro analysis. But before we go to them, let's quickly go over the biggest stories in markets today, along with the coronavirus. Starting off, President Trump signed an executive order yesterday compelling meatpacking plants to stay open during the pandemic, taking advantage of the broad powers made available to him under the Defense Production Act to classify slaughterhouses as critical infrastructure in order to prevent meat shortages. Price of feeders continues to plunge even though meat prices are soaring. The wide delta between animal and meat prices is a prime example of the bottleneck in the supply chain. President Trump's order may prevent a meat shortage, but it also exerts a heavy burden on American meatpacking workers, over 4,000 of whom have already tested positive for the virus. And in other news, auto manufacturing giant Ford Motor Company disappoints as it reports a staggering $2 billion loss in the first quarter. Sales fell by 15% year over year to $34.4 billion in comparison to $40.3 billion a year ago. Not surprisingly, shares plummeted 6% in after-hours trading on Tuesday and are down more than 2% on the day. This comes amidst a barrage of bad news for the American staple, as its credit standing fell from grace a few weeks ago when S&P Global Ratings downgraded their bonds to junk status. Over the last 12 months, Ford shares have fallen by nearly 50%, and there is reason to believe that the worst is yet to come. Second quarter guidance sent shivers down Wall Street's spine, as the company expects the full effects from the coronavirus fallout to materialize in the form of a $5 billion loss in the second quarter. While losses in the sector had been widely expected, the figure is almost double what analysis were predicting just a few days ago. To add to this, Ford chief executive Jim Hackett provided a grim view of what is to come, stating, quote, there is no future, in an earnings call that took an unexpected philosophical turn. We've spoken a lot on The Daily Briefing about some of the unique challenges that many EM countries have been and will be facing during this crisis. And we have also discussed some of the potential knock-on effects of cheap oil throughout markets. I want to dive a little more into how cheap oil will affect countries like Iran and how the real economy and financial economy are more closely intertwined in emerging markets. Lots of VM economies are highly dependent on revenues from commodities exports, like oil, as large portions of their fiscal budgets are built around those projected revenues. And Iran is in a particularly fragile position with cheap oil. Oil makes up about 10% of Iran's budget. The combination of that, along with battling its own COVID-19 epidemic and limited monetary tools to sustain fiscal budgets, 
will seep out into the real economy, making the hit much harder. For example, sectors such as agriculture have been supported by oil revenue, so Iran could be facing shortages of food and increasing the risk of starvation for many of its citizens. The US sanctions currently on Iran also have hampered their ability to fight the virus due to lost revenue that could have otherwise been allocated to managing the outbreak. All of that said, it's definitely fueling the fire for heightened geopolitical tensions. Lastly, the Fed had released a statement earlier in the day stating that they aren't expected to make any rate policy decisions now. However, Jay Powell and the Fed will continue assessing the situation at hand and will keep utilizing their full range of tools as necessary for the time being. And with that, let's turn it over to Ash and Roger. Ash, what's going on? Thanks, Nick. It's Wednesday, April 29, 2020, just after market close, London time. I'm Ash Bennington for Real Vision. This is The Daily Briefing. I'm joined today by Roger Hurst in Ipswich. How are you, Roger? Yeah, absolutely great, thank you. Did I say that right, or did I just make a horrible... No, it's, it's actually, no Ipswich is my nearest reasonably large town. I'm actually on the coast, a place called Alborough. Ah. But Ipswich, Ipswich is the nearest, yes. Yes, well, you know, we didn't want to reveal your undisclosed location. Cutting right into it here, uh, we got some numbers out today. Uh, Q1 2020, real GDP minus 4.8%. That's on a prior of positive 2.1% below the consensus estimate of minus 3.7%. And perhaps uh, even more grim, we got uh, real consumer spending out. This is uh, a print of minus 7.6% uh, on a prior of 1.8%, obviously pre-crisis. Uh, that's not just below the consensus of minus 1.5%. It's below the entire consensus range of minus 6.3% to minus 0.5%. And to put this in context, this is the largest drop on record since the beginning of the Reagan presidency. Roger, does data matter? Uh, no, not really, because we know it's going to be bad. And when it's really bad, we kind of go, well, you know, it was always going to be bad. It's just a bit worse. And I think more importantly, when it's really, really bad, I mean, the bad of the day to the bigger the expected response. And given that this is the Fed day, FOMC will be out after we film this. There's probably this feeling that because it's so bad that the Fed will, will allude to that or talk about something else. But I think what's really interesting in the, this data is that the consumption figures in particular indicate that the, the, the U.S. population started retrenching early kind of you know this is this is supposed to really be a big story for q2 more than q1 but already the consumers thought you know i'm going to batten down their hatches and and i think that's kind of you know we've been talking about this all along which is what will be the response coming out of that now it might be that if they they went early they'll come out early or is it that they've understood that there's generally what this means that it's going to be in for the long haul they started battening down early and they'll stay in a relatively sensible mode. And there's a, a data piece, I think, which was for every dollar that's gone through to kind of the end use, the real economy, something like under 20 cents of each dollar has actually been spent and the rest of it either been going into savings or going into paying down debt, which those figures would also kind of allude to as well. Yeah, you've been uh, early to this party, Roger, talking about effectively what our negative multiplier effects, um, you know, the aspect of the stimulus that we're providing is not feeding through to the real economy on a one-to-one -one basis, but considerably less. With a drop in consumption, does that trend look to escalate uh, or worsen? I mean, I think it's got to escalate because the the sort of the deepest cuts that I've been making to my own um, lifestyle, in a way, have happened in the last two weeks, not in the first, you know, not, not it wasn't in March, it's been in April. 
I've been doing it now, and even now I'm kind of cutting more and more corners. Now, there is this sense, you can see it in Europe and you can see it everywhere else, that people are either starting to move around a little bit more, just a gentle um, uptrend even within the lockdown scenario. And obviously people are talking about coming out of lockdown, but that's in, in lockstep coming out of lockdown. We're not suddenly going to come blazing out of here. Um, but, you know, there's there's this sort of sense that I've, you know, I've certainly been a lot more sensible and cautious in my own spending. I've, I've kind of, I'm almost... In, in some ways, it's cathartic trying to see how, how sort of sensible I can be. I think a lot of people will be exactly the same. It sounds a bit dull, but we will. And then when we come out of this, yes, there will be a splurge. But as we've seen in China, they came out of this um, and there was a splurge, but then the reality kicks in and it looks like it was a, a sudden burst of energy. And then that energy is starting to slow down and dissipate again. I mean, I don't, I'm sure you're getting the same feeling there. You know, we get, we get a bit stir crazy. We get a little bit excited when we can have a little bit of relaxation but it doesn't last for long. It, it slows down again. Yeah, it sort of reminds me of the uh, Saturday night after a big night at the bar on Friday. You kind of pare back the spending a little. Maybe you do. <laughs> Roger, talking about bars and pubs, uh, one of the things that Ed and I have been talking about is the highly regionalized nature of this uh, here in the U.S. When we're in places in the country like uh, New York City that have been unusually severe, uh, there's a huge contrast with people uh, elsewhere uh, out in the broader country. Uh, you know, for example, I have a, a buddy in Orange County, California, this beautiful uh, place, great beaches. And, uh, you know, whenever I ask him what's up, he says, well, you know, I mean, there are people on the beaches and they're wearing surgical masks now. But it feels like life is more or less, uh, to a much greater extent, certainly than in New York, going on as business as usual. Do you get that sense uh, in the UK? Are there pockets where there is greater degree of, of sensitivity to it, more closures, more restrictions on the economy versus places in the countryside, maybe with lower population density, where the restrictions do not feel as onerous? I think it is almost entirely that. I mean, I'm sure we'll look back at this, and I'm, I'm not going to do any expert view here, but the, the whole point is that all the um, high concentration places have been hit hard, particularly high concentration places with a large through population, whereas places where I live, like out here, I'm on the sort of the arse end of, of the UK, that sort of bump on the edge. And there's not many people around here. And I've been relatively cautious, um, and I sort of tended to keep to within the village. But you can just feel that there is... A lot more freedom. I mean, it, but the point is that when I go out, there are not many people on the streets because it is not densely, densely populated. So it feels quite safe. All my friends who live in towns, they go out and they say, yeah, you know, you, you've got to avoid bumping into people when you're doing your exercise. So I think it's quite natural that that's probably the expression that almost every country will have is in the built up places. Remember, a lot of northern, a lot of southern Europe, places in Spain, places in Italy, you've got high population density living in apartments where it's been hitting the hardest. And it's also been in that time when everyone's there rather than in their um, country villas. So I think that this is one of those areas or one of those things where, you know, funnily enough, high population density, crowded transport systems versus where I am in the middle of the countryside where everyone gets in the tractor, you know, there's a massive difference. Yeah, absolutely huge. And that mirrors exactly what we see here in uh, New York City. Um, just to move on, some other things that we're watching here, there's some positive stories uh, coming out about the drug remdesivir uh, and an additional story uh, coming out yesterday about the drug famotidine, which is better known as Pepsid, common heartburn medication. You know, one of the crucial steps to, I think, getting the country open again, getting the world open again, is the notion of uh, having an effective treatment. It's hard to believe, uh, but there are simply no proven effective treatments still to date for coronavirus, other than general supportive treatment, respirators where necessary, giving people drugs to help open up their lungs. But as of right now, we have nothing that's proven. Do you think this could prove to be a game changer? 
Over the long term, yes. I mean, it's this is the thing again. I'm nothing. I have no. I, I'm not involved in, in the medical profession whatsoever. But the reality of getting something from being, you know, even if it's a proven drug right here, right now, to actually getting millions and millions of doses out to the right people. I mean, there is an unfortunate reality because when we talk on this program, we're nearly always talking about the issues of the d developed economies in Northern Europe and in the U.S. But in the reality of the real world, unfortunately, there are many, many illnesses that have been eradicated in North America, in Europe, in Japan and other places that still cause hundreds of thousands of deaths elsewhere. The problem is, it's how much does it cost and how quickly can you process it and get it out there? So we're seeing some reactions, and I don't think the real market reactions are sort of, oh, why we've just got the, 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 the cure. Right. There's a little bit of hope in there with all the other things that are going on. But the reality is, you know, what we've seen, and I've said this before, what we've seen so far is we saw the first stage of deleveraging. We're now having the bounce, and then we've got the reality to set in. And the reality to set in will take a little bit longer. But right. that's still ahead of us. Now, there is still the difference that the Federal Reserve, with this vast amount of monetary stimulus plus the fiscal stimulus, may push the risk assets further in the U.S., than almost anywhere else. But what you're seeing in the US, when people talk about equities and go, look at the S&P, that's great, but look at Europe. We've only just managed a 38% retracement versus the S&P at 62% as of us speaking right now. And this is the thing, is that you know, when it comes to these drugs, it's going to take a long time. But what we're seeing in the markets is still within the normal bounds of a rebound. You know, Roger, just from a from not from a medical perspective, but from just an animal spirits perspective, is there something about this this illness that just feels hopeless to people because we don't have treatments? Is it possible that when we start hearing of drugs that are having positive clinical trials, that it will open up on the animal spirits front? People will be a little bit more uh, willing to spend a little bit less, uh, a little bit less locked down in their spending mentality. I think there's inevitably that sense because obviously we want to look forward, but in some ways, you know, what, where, where are we now? It's, it's almost we're almost getting to the stage because of where particularly the the, the Nasdaq is, but to a lesser extent the S and P. There's almost this phase where you're going, you know what? Actually, this could have been good for the economy. Now that's utterly, utterly ridiculous. You know, it, I know it. It's insane, but because of the response and the thing that is striking about this whole experience for all of us is that this happened in such an incredibly short period of time. So in some ways, some of the worst impacts economically have still not had a chance to really feed through. Remember, 2008 was the culmination of over two years of a gradual decline in the economy that was kept on life support by Federal Reserve liquidity, et cetera, et cetera. Today, it went bam, the Federal Reserve went boom, and we're still trying to work out which of those two sides have actually created the greatest impact, the disease or the short-term cure. Yeah. And we don't know. And that's what we're discussing here with the S&P at this rebound juncture. You know, you mentioned something yes, uh, a little bit earlier uh, that you've picked up on in other days here, uh, which is the, the technical retracement levels. Can you give us an update of where your thinking is on that right now? So I, I look at the S&P and... and I've stated before that I still think this is in within the normal bounds, normal bounds of a retracement. We're at 62%. 40% of all the big sell-offs that I looked at um, since 1929 got to 50, got to 62%, with a lot of them getting to 50%. So that's normal. The Nasdaq, on the other hand, is getting up to 76%. 
The only one that I saw doing that was after the Volmageddon of 2018. But it's still within those bounds, and I'm still treating it as such. But the framework, and this isn't helpful to anyone really when I describe this framework, but the way I think about it is my base case is we roll over, but that's using the mentality of the world of active management where individual investors were in control, not the machines and the rules-based funds that are today. But that's still my base case. Now, if we break higher and eventually we could break the all-time highs, then you've got to start to say, well, maybe the S&P should go to 4,000. Now, it sounds like a ridiculous notion, but the point is it won't be about valuation. It won't be about profits. It will be entirely about the mechanism of monetary and fiscal coming through and working its way into financial assets with almost no reflection on the underlying economy. And so my simple view is I still think we're in the rebound phase. It could grind out for a lot longer. I think the reality phase is still to be ahead of us. Right. But I have to temper that with the reality that might be that central banks have taken control beyond my expectation. Well, you know, you just alluded to what my next question was going to be, which is uh, this point of if this is sort of a business as usual, typical trade bound, uh, trade range uh, type of uh, situation where it looks like a, a typical correction, does that give you pause? Does it concern you? Because the effects on the ground are so much different than what we've seen in traditional uh, sell offs. Well, I think that what I'm looking for is or what, what has surprised me in some ways is the lack of rebound in the banks. And in some ways, you know, how do we look at this? Do I look at five fangs, well, the fang stocks and a few other um, tech stocks? Or do I look at effectively the real economy? And we talked about the real economy and oil and other things. You look at the banks. The banks in Europe have only managed a 23% retracement. And that was in the first few days of the rebound. They're still below that now. The BKX in the US is around about a 38% retracement, maybe a little bit ahead of that with today's move as well. But these are crucial conduits for the economy. Now, I know we've changed a lot since 2008. But even so, the fact that they've not moved particularly hard tells me, or at least alludes to the fact that the real economy is still a problem. And the other thing to think about as well is volumes. On the way down, the S&P mini future was doing 4 million contracts a day between end of, end of February and the lows on the 23rd of March. Since then, the average has been 2,000, 2 million, sorry, so half that. Same on the Qs, which is the ETF on the NASDAQ, whereas the spider, spider ETF is around about 55% in the four weeks afterwards versus the four weeks before. It took a lot of volume going down. There was a lot of volume. It was a complete change in mentality. The way up has been a little bit on air. You, you know, the bid off the spread on the S&P minis is around about 10, 15 contracts versus 100 prior to the COVID hitting. So with that in mind as well, you know, this is an elevation that's nothing to do with fundamentals, either economic or corporate. It's entirely to do with, as we said before, liquidity. Raj, when you talk about the, your historical look at, at these uh, at these levels, and you mentioned the speed, do, what is the is there an asymmetric uh, take on the speed up versus the speed down? What's typical in terms of the timing pattern with those retracement levels? Um, there is none really. I mean, we can look at. Um, I mean, in some ways, maybe we're we're retracing 1929. Whereas 1929, it went down a very similar amount in that first wave, and then it took about five months, six months, um, retracing. It got to 62% or thereabouts. I think it was between 50 and 62, um, without ever retesting that low until a few months later. And then it took it out, and it went down a significant amount. If you look at Japan in 1989, it did a 50% retracement rolled over, a 50% retracement, and then took months, I think it was 14 months before it took out the lows. Whereas we've seen other scenarios where these can be very, very short, sharp uh, rebounds, 2018, Volmageddon, uh, and we retested pretty quickly, 2018 in the um, last quarter, we actually retested and took them out. 
but then had, and this is what in some ways is imbuing our view now, is that we had that V-shaped rebound out of December the 24th when the Fed made a misstep. But then it had already been a sell-off, a rebound and a retake of the lows. So the normality would not be straight down and straight up. But this, the speed down was unusual, the speed up is unusual, but they're all still relative to each other quite normal. Yeah, you know, Roger, that's just invaluable historical context. As much as we've been saying this is unprecedented, it's fascinating to listen to the history of it and to get a sense of the fact that there is some degree of cyclicality, some degree of repetition in the way these cycles tend to play out. Yeah, very much so. And this is why my base case has to be has still to be that. But I've got an open mind that, firstly, we're not active managers running this market anymore. It's rules-based funds. And secondly, the response from the central bank in the US is particularly exceptional. But when you look around the rest of the world, the Australian market is bounced 38%. As I said, most of Europe is, is 38%. When you look at Hong Kong, they've done a bit better, Kospi as well in Korea. But they've already had a very weak couple of years. They've rebounded between 50 and 62, more in line with the S&P. But the US equity market stands out very much as being an impressive rebound. But that's because it's a central bank that can print theoretically ad infinitum, which is why the expressions of, you know, my safety valve expressions of a weaker global economy are in emerging market FX rather than in, in equity markets. And in fact, Amazon itself as a stock has almost no correlation with macro. If you want to play macro in the US, you want to play the Russell 2000. That's very heavily related to GDP. Amazon's idiosyncratic for the obvious reasons we know. Yeah, it's so interesting to look at these and see what's correlated and what's not. You point out emerging markets. Another thing that one might bring up is the idea of uh, oils, uh, oil being a, a bellwether because it's obviously it's physically settled and central banks are not buying oil uh, at this point. Any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, we've got, it's tricky now, but I'm looking, I'm actually staring more at Brent. I mentioned that last week. And I'm also now staring at the second month on WTI, at least for now, because you know, we saw a big move again a couple of days ago where it fell about 20%. In fact, today we're now up 30, we're up 28% as we're talking on the front month WTI. A couple of days ago, it was a role that was driving it as, as one of the big index providers said, look, we're going to move one month further beyond for our, um, for our price discovery in oil. And as you had sort of 16 to 20% down in the front month, the second month was actually up 1%. Today, we're up 30% on the front month, but we're only up 11% on the second month. So you're seeing these incredible gyrations. I think the oil uh, vol index got to 2,500% when we went negative last week. I'm looking at Brent and I'm looking at the second month because that front month is still being driven by um, ETF factors, commodity index factors, and obviously expiry factors where you deliver physical with WTI. Brent delivers physical, but it also has a cash, um, cash exchange or cash expiry as well. So, so Brent, in, in short, is a better index of macroeconomic demand. I think so. It is, the, it is the global benchmark. It's not as heavily volume. It's not got as heavy a volume as WTI, but something like a quarter of the open interest on WTI was things like the USO ETF. So it was distorted by financial assets versus the real economy. Brent trades less, but Brent is, is kind of the benchmark for all the oil outside the landlocked North American continent. Right. Now, there, there, there's some interchangeability, obviously, but the spread, the ratio still remains relatively wide between the two. It's, it's kind of within the range of the last 10 years at the extremes. But I'm looking at Brent as, as more of a global benchmark because there's just less volatility in it at the moment. Right. And all those technical factors that you point out, which drive these wild gyrations even above and beyond what we're seeing from a suppression in demand. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, and I think that's it. And we look at that real economy. 
you know, are there other areas where we could start to see some some risks? Um, you know, there are, you know, we've been talking about foodstuffs as well. That I, I, I've been seeing some unusual moves in corn because I think corn was 40% ethanol. If oil's down here, then ethanol's not so exciting. And corn front month has been breaking down, something that Peter Brandt's been talking about. So, you know, are there some knock-on effects where we could start to see similar but lesser impacts in, in some of these other futures? And I think you know, there are some bits and pieces out there where we're seeing some big breakages between, you know, food being produced and uh, itself, but the actual raw materials, cattle, corn, the breakages are in the processing plants, which are being taken out, the supply chains. There's a big problem there, but this is not just in food. It's across all supply chains globally. Yeah, you know, just to transition, you've made some really interesting points there. Uh, when we talk about uh, the food shortage component here, here in North America, it seems as though the bottleneck is the meat processing plants. We had some big news yesterday. Uh, Donald Trump signed an executive order uh, under the Defense Production Act effectively to keep those meat processing plants open. You know, today there's some negative headlines about meat plant workers saying that they may not go back to work. To You know, to what extent this is major news networks driving anti-Trump sentiment to drive clicks remains to be seen. But this is really a significant uh, potential uh, bottleneck and also something that could feed through, I think, in a really material way to not just animal spirits, but also to sort of national mood and national morale. If there's a meat shortage, this is a really serious problem. And I think this is a problem that's going to be faced. I mean, it's it's a problem that's going to be faced across a lot of supply chains. And I'm battling with a kind of working out whether in the short term we're going to get inflationary or deflationary bottlenecks, obviously bottlenecks with deflation. And the point here is that what you're seeing is that the input prices are becoming deflationary because farmers have got a glut of, of produce with no one to take it off their hands because the, um, as you said, the, the meat manufacturing, the processing plants are not working. But that's creating, creating inflationary bottlenecks on the other side. But then you've got this other dynamic, which is that um, if you are seeing, um, you know, if you're seeing aggregate demand that remains very, very weak, but you're coming back to production, we are seeing that now, if we're coming out of lockdown, some productive facilities will come back online. And this is something that we're seeing in places like China, where they're starting to produce manufactured goods. But if aggregate demand, which is actually quite hard to stimulate, particularly if there's been a retrenchment psychologically, is that going to be going to be creating some merchandise gluts as well? I don't know whether this is inflationary bottlenecks or whether we're going to get a buildup of inventory because aggregate demand is not picking up. I think it's going to be a combination. I think you've got to kind of pick your supply chain. So kind of you need your expertise on each one of those. But this whole inflation deflation argument, I can make arguments for both sides and I'll be wrong a lot of the time and right a lot of the time. There's no clear answer yet. Well, this cuts back to something that we've been saying, which obviously is the lack of precedent for this. Some of the other things, retracement levels, uh, for example, on uh, major equity indices we have precedent for. This is much more difficult to gauge. Yeah, the, this, I mean, we've talked about unprecedented. It is unprecedented. There are so many kind of elements to this. Because, again, on that same theme, ultimately what a lot of the inflation stories are is that if you stimulate demand properly and if we actually had a higher velocity of demand from the, um, from the accommodation that's been pushed through, then you'd worry about the inflationary impacts of the supply chain bottlenecks, right. but demand picking up. But if it's true that actually people are going into savings and paying off debt, then the aggregate demand is weak. And therefore, you might worry more about buildup of inventory, which would be deflationary. We don't know. Um, my guess is that the real inflation story, if it comes through, is way down the road. If we have the fiat currency story, if we have the fiscal and the monetary combining together, particularly from what the Fed is doing. But now we just had on Monday the Bank of Japan effectively going to QE uh, infinity on the bond market as well. Yeah. But if we get that, that's what everyone says is the, the fiscal story that creates inflation. 
But what if we've had a massive disruption to aggregate demand at the consumer level, where people have said, you know what, my balance sheet was always out of whack for 10 years. This has been the kick up the bottom that I've needed to say, right, now I'm going to take my savings ratio up. Now I'm going to pay down my debt. And I don't need three cars when one was good enough. Yeah, you know, the other potential confounding factor that I think about is inflation, of course, is uh, defined as a generalized rise in prices uh, impacted by aggregate demand. But we could also have localized pockets uh, of inflation and things like consumer staples, uh, for example, food prices rising because of uh, supply chains being impaired and a lack of ability to either create or get goods to market. So um, that is also another possible item on the menu of um, negative potential outcomes here, I guess. Well, there's that whole debate on inflation and deflation and what is inflation. I mean, inflation in the 1970s was a kind of an unexpected growth in population, plus the bottlenecks created by OPEC and also the post-war political systems. Then you've got inflation that's created by currency devaluation, Weimar Republic and, you know, Zimbabwe and places like that. Um, you've got inflation, which could just be, is, is it inflation of wages or is it inflation of financial assets? We've seen inflation of financial assets caused by money printing. So there's all these different types of inflation. Which one is it? The one that people really want is the inflation of wages, and it's the one we've not really had yet. And in some ways, that's because of the power of the corporate, because we've seen, you know, I mentioned before, too little capitalism rather than too much capitalism. Um, we've seen too few too little competition and big behemoths starting to take control, and that's limited things. What we've basically seen is most of the deflation that we've had has been taken in by the big corporates, but not spewed out, so they've taken a fatter and fatter margin. So what is inflation? I don't really know which ones are coming here. There's the, there's the money, money printing version, but there's also the supply chain bottleneck version. There's all, all different types of inflation. And I think to sort of say it's this or that inflation is wrong, we've kind of got to go, it's, it's a bottleneck style, it's a money printing style, but actually maybe demand collapsing is deflationary within all of this. We don't know. But these are all playing out. I'm a, I've always been in the deflationary camp. And so far, all accommodation has seen velocity of money fall. But the fiscal game changer is coming, or the fiscal is coming, and that could be the game changer. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear you talk about this, Roger, because these are issues that you've obviously been thinking about for a very long time, from the big bank capital market days uh, through to the Oxford geography student uh, background. You've obviously been thinking about this a long time. One other thing I'd like to ask you about is, to what extent does globalization change that picture? You know, the percentage uh, of the American economy that's driven by imports now, obviously far greater than it was in the 1970s when we had the more classical style inflation. To what extent, when you think about these things at that level of nuance and detail, does that play a role? I think globalization was one of two things, really. One, one was, obviously, um, any corporate could re, um, retool and, well, actually just lift tools and just go off and, and land somewhere else and start the productive process more cheaply, which should have fed into a disinflationary impact, which it did for many finished goods. But there was also really more a margin story for the corporates. But as we've now seen with globalization, is it means there's these very, very, um, uh, very, very, I wouldn't call them weak, but fragile supply chains. Now, if globalization ends, well, I mean, this should be inflationary at the margin because the benefits of globalization peaked a long time ago, crested, and now we've been going down the other side, which means more localization, more localization 
means um, you know, the, the volume, the size falls. Because remember, what's been in the driving seat for the last 10 years, it's been a corporate story globally. We've seen bigger and bigger companies. And you know, in the US, there's been lots and lots of regional monopolies and oligopolies that define pricing. The reason why Buffett always liked the railways is there were regional monopolies and oligopolies. Now, that might not change in the US, but globally, we might see a, a breakdown of that. Theoretically, theoretically that is uh, an inflationary story at the margin. But if at the same time, this is a kind of a denudation of, of globalization, then that's deflationary in terms of the whole kind of global demand picture, because the easy money, the story of easy money flows has that ended as well. So this is why anybody's view is a good view. No one's view is right. And this is why it's the philosoph philosophical side that we need to have. And it's a refreshing or it should be a refreshing debate because I don't know. And I would challenge anyone to be able to say can you, you know, absolutely perfectly that they know which way it's going. Yeah, it's uh, the old uh, quote misattributed to uh, Niels Bohr. Predictions are very difficult, especially about the future. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's a debate we'll be having a long time into this future that we've got because, you know, we're just debating whether it's a 62% retracement on the S&P and a rollover to new lows or whether we take out 4,000 on the S&P. But the bigger question ultimately will be the, the inflation deflation, because that's a real world story. And when I say inflation deflation, inflation deflation are wages, real consumption patterns, rather than financial inflation of equity assets in the US, which I see as being very different from assets, financial assets outside of the US, which I think will struggle to make those sorts of moves that we might be seeing domestic US market. Roger, we're coming to the end here. Any final thoughts, points we didn't have a chance to touch on that you'd like to hit? I think you know, the one thing that really strikes me is that if, if you want to play this, I mentioned it earlier, you know, if you want to play this market, where do we play it? And I think it's the FX markets. And I think it's interesting that when you look at um, FX volatility, it's currently around about 8.4. This is the CVIX. Now, the range for the last five years has been five, the low, to around about 12.5. So 8.5 here is actually remarkably good value in an environment where we're in the 200, 300s on oil vol. We're still in the 30s um, on the VIX. FX is a good way to play this. And I still think that EMFX is the best way to play this. The countries that can't print their way out of it, that don't effectively have the unlimited printing presses of Japan, Europe, and the US. I think these are the countries, these emerging market countries and their currencies is the way to play the macro. It won't be as sexy. That's what volatility is telling us. You're not going to get 10, 20% moves. You might get some moves like we saw in the Brazilian rail, and sometimes you get your Argentinas. But if you want to play, I think, a much more stable way uh, of playing a macro story, the true macro story, you go to the FX markets. And because the volatility is lower, if we're wrong, you're not going to get your ass handed to you on a plate. You will live to fight another day. Playing in the equity market, you can be wrong within minutes. Playing in the oil market, within seconds. The FX markets, not so much. And that's, I think, is the best way to play it from a sensible perspective. It's a very interesting take, Roger. Next time, maybe we'll talk about um, we'll talk about the role of exchange-traded products and central banks on this market, because that's something I really want to get your take on. Okay, sounds good. We'll do that. Wonderful. Thanks for joining us. Good to speak to you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.